Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hey there, listeners. You're listening to the Eating Habits Podcast, and I'm your host, Jamie Lynch. This week's episode is sponsored by Sachet. Sachet is a specialty spirit shop with a mission to help you drink less and live more. They offer over 100 different brands. Sachet carries functional beverages, beer, wine, spirits, mixers, and more. They're opening a flagship tasting salon on November 15th on King Street in Charleston. You can visit Sachet in person or online, and they're offering free local delivery and nationwide shipping 24-7. As many of you know, I do not drink alcohol, but I still do enjoy the the craft of mixology. Sachet offers a bunch of different products, distillates, and alcohol-free spirits that allow me the opportunity to enjoy a cocktail without all of the alcohol. If you're into that kind of thing or want to check it out, please check out their shop. I also want to thank our guest, Ben Ellsworth, for speaking to us and opening up about his story on this week's episode. Um, I really enjoyed speaking to him. It was definitely a a heartfelt episode, um, and he goes deep into his past, his career, and how he developed the app that could change the hospitality business forever. So enjoy the show. Hey y'all, this is Ben Ellsworth and you're listening to Eating Habits. What's up, Ben? What's up? Welcome aboard. Thank you for having me aboard. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. You, let's see how we're going to jump into this. So you're CEO, founder of GigPro. Yep. Just, uh, just founder now. So just founder. I, I had to find someone uh, that can scale a software company. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We'll, so, get in, we'll get into the self-awareness thing in yeah, a little bit because yeah, sure. I totally understand the evolution. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So founder, you're founder of uh, GigPro, which is, it's an app for, uh, explain it, explain what it is. It's, it's definitely um, something that's super cool and new. I mean, it's a, it's a connection-based platform for the hospitality industry. So we connect businesses that are either looking for help for the night or they're trying to create connections and build relationships with people to lead to permanent placement. Yep. We use, we use gig pro a lot actually Yeah. right now. I, w- I wish we could use it less, but we'll get into that a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Sure. Um, uh, but it's been super helpful to fill slots and, and um, you know, you, you have people call out emergencies or whatever it's nice to have an option you started off in the hospitality business though you were back of the house guy i was i was a back of the house guy 25 years total okay a quarter of a century and so explain that a little bit like what was your trajectory in restaurants how'd you get into hospitality what was it about restaurants and food that kind of captivated you or caught your I mean, I didn't, I didn't get a job until I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in like punk rock bands in high school. Mm-hmm. So, Likely story. Yeah. Right. I, uh, I could scream and I was definitely going to try to make a, a living out of that. Um, mm-hmm. A frugal one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was apparent right off the rip. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but uh, I, if it filled the tank, you know, um, I, I was, there's a lot of passion in being up on a stage and playing your music. And then I graduated high school and my mom kind of just moved. She was like, Hey, I'm going back home. Her parents were uh, sick and one had passed away. So she really wanted to get back to her family in Virginia. And she was like, the second you graduate high school, you need to start paying your own rent and find a place. Mm -hmm. um, so punk rock wasn't paying the bills. <laughs> <laughs> what year was this? This was uh, 90, 97 yeah. or 96, yeah. probably. Yeah, 96, maybe 95. I don't know. Blurry. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> gotcha. Punk rock can yeah. blur things as <laughs> yeah. well. Um, but uh, I had a buddy that was working as kind of like a cocktail server at a comedy house theater in Augusta, Georgia, where I'm from. And he was like, Hey, you should come work. They need a, a fry guy. And I was like, I can, I can fry, I guess. But it, it was more the appeal of like working at a comedy house. You know, mm -hmm. this guy was meeting comedians and I thought that that would be pretty, pretty cool. Everyone had always told me I was funny. So like maybe if I, crack people up you know in the back of the house that uh you know maybe i'll be on that stage i'll get noticed uh but i went back there and uh you know so i worked fry it was easy most of the the product was in the freezer mm -hmm. the only thing we really made from scratch was chicken wings and beer battered mushrooms right you know? everything yeah. else you yeah, grabbed it grab out it. The free if you could count you could fry yeah. you know um <laughs> But what really attracted me to it is that they would fill the waiting room and seat everybody at once. So the waiting room, if it was a sold out show, 280 people, they would sit them at once. They'd take drink orders at once. They'd take food orders right after the drinks at the table. And when the ticket machine went off, it didn't stop. Mm -hmm. You got the entire dining room. So it was a... It was crazy, uh -huh. you know, and that was like the first thing that I fell in love with. So was it that adrenaline rush? Was it that like anxiety <laughs> like that? Yeah. It's like that, that, you know, it was the fear of like, are yeah. we going to even be able to do this? You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. You had to have all the food out before the feature act. Mm -hmm. So you only had about 45 minutes yeah. to get out you know, yeah, yeah. a shit ton of orders. But uh, that's really, you know, the chaos, the energy the team in that moment like hey guys we're all we got we know it's going to be fucked up yeah. we got to get through this right. you know let's um, make it the best way we can yeah. yeah and so we had two stations it was grill um and it was fry and you know at that time the night you were going to have really depended on the comedian so if we had Polly Shore or Bob Saget, and it was a white crowd grill got hit really hard mm -hmm. if you had a black comedian I got dominated. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time in the late 90s, it was Bernie Mac, it was D.L. Hughley, it was Chris Rock and yeah. Earthquake and Simone. And so I was busy. You were just getting your ass kicked. <laughs> every <laughs> single <laughs> night. Um, but the great thing was is that I did meet a lot of, uh, of the comedians. And it, it was just a fun environment, you know, yeah. for, for me at that time. Now, I was a troublemaker, you know, I was this punk rock kid pirate now working in a kitchen and uh and partying a lot and uh you know 
got in some trouble with the police in Augusta and was kind of given the suggestion you need to get the fuck out of Richmond County by <laughs> the chief of police in my living room at like three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called my mom and I was like, hey, I think I, I think I want to move. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I didn't really have anything going for me positive or legal at that time besides this job that I had at the Comedy House Theater. And I was like, I think I want to cook. And she was like, okay. And then she called me back a couple days later. She was like, Ben, you know, there's a culinary school down in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Johnson and Wales. And you could do that, you know, if you're thinking about cooking. And all I knew about cooking at that time was it was a lot of fun. It was chaotic. It was a nonstop party. And I was like, man, if you can make money doing this as a career, I'm all in. Sign me up. Yeah. So (laughs) I moved to, to, um, I moved to Charleston to go to Johnson Wells in 1998. Gotcha. Cool. And then, so you finished the program there? No. <laughs> of course not. No, no, there's no, too, no. There, There's uh, too much shit going on, man. It, uh, <laughs> it was... Uh, so how long did that tenure last? So uh, I think I completed the first year. Okay. Uh, you know, what, what was crazy is that when I moved to Charleston in 98, it took me eight months to get a job because all I had on my resume was this comedy house theater as a fry cook stocks and sauces, American regional cuisine. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't get hired. Yeah. So I was just kind of going back home on the weekends, getting in trouble and then come coming back to Charleston. The first spot that gave me a shot was a little Italian restaurant on the corner of, uh, Cumberland and, and state street, I think called Bocce's, uh, little, tourist driven kind of spot uh had 85 seats and we would turn that thing for dinner like five times so uh the my living room now is bigger than the kitchen that was there uh but so small kind of you know i mean you couldn't fit four people back there dishwasher two guys online maybe a back expo and then, you know, someone on expo and that was it. Mm -hmm. Server had enough room to get through the door, grab the food and walk right back out (laughs) in the dining room. But, uh, same thing, fast paced, lots of chaos party, Mm -hmm. you know, every night. But I wouldn't say at that point I was taking anything serious. What I did, like my strengths at that time were I could count. Uh, I can. <laughs> nice. It's really bad when you have to put that at the top of your list, buddy. Well, counting, uh, counting goes into like kind of mental organization, you know, okay. like, uh, it's, uh, I could prioritize a lot of things in my head and, um, and I was fast, yeah. you know, I think the, if you can store like 20 to 30 tickets orders in your head at a time, like yeah. without having to take the second here and the second there to kind of recalibrate, you know, from the board, uh, you move quick. Yep. And so that's what I was enjoying. I was learning a little bit about food, but not a whole bunch, you know, it was a step up above opening the freezer door. Right. And, uh, you guys weren't making pastas from scratch and doing, we were some, but I wasn't involved in that world. I was just involved in the, you know, cook it as fast as you can, put it 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 in the bowl and go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, 
you know, I wasn't really involved in the, in the prep world, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of it was still prefabricated and, uh, a lot of that had to do with just the volume that we were doing right. and, and the space. Yeah. The limitations. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I still hadn't, uh, I, w- I was a production guy at mm-hmm. that point. Uh, haven't, hadn't caught the bug for food yet. And then, uh, they promoted me up to sous chef probably after my first year. And that's when I was like, what am I going to culinary school for? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a chef. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, I, I was, when I moved down here, uh, as a, my first hourly rate was like six fifty, And then I think I got up to seven fifty. you know, yeah. and then they promoted me to sous chef and I hit the big time yeah. 24, five. Whoa. That Which, is, yeah. At that time, uh, was that's, like, that's thousands a year. <laughs> not, not, an, that's not 2450 an hour Yeah, for, for the listeners. <laughs> but I mean, you know, uh, yeah. $24,000 a year. That's big times. You could cram three line cooks in a, uh, in a two bedroom apartment and pay six fifty seven hundred a month yeah. at that time. And, uh, you know, we all lived on the peninsula, so you just kind of walked, walked into everywhere. work or rolled into work or crawled <laughs> into work. You just got the work, you know. Um, but it wasn't until uh, another buddy of mine uh, that I'd met at Bocce's, he was like, you know, there's this chef, Fred Nouvelle. He's opening up this brasserie, French brasserie, and it's called 39 Rue de Jean, and they need people. And uh, they had been open for a little bit before I got there. And, but I was going to do it. I was interested enough that, like, I knew, like, you know, French is the real deal. Right. You know? So I went over there and uh, completely uncomfortable. Yeah. For a long time. Why? What was it about that experience that you were like, what the being fast and being able to count yeah. <laughs> was no longer a streak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. There that, was, that wasn't the prerequisite anymore. Yeah. For, I mean, there was, there was technique and, uh, there wasn't a lot of prefabrication and, mm-hmm. uh, you needed and knife was, skills. You needed, there was this new thing called standards. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> You know, they put me on Garmage or, yeah, cold apps, and I struggled there because, you know, I had things like beef tartare to order. Right. Um, I had things like plastic spoons everywhere. Taste, taste, taste. I didn't know what seasoned food meant, what, yeah. You know, uh-huh. um, you I taste it, and I go, you know, I mean, uh, it's good. Yeah. It, it's not making me wretch. Yeah. You know, so yeah. obviously it's right. <laughs> and, um he would just send everything back through the window. Right. You know, it needs oh, yeah. more salt. It needs more salt. It needs more salt. Maybe 16 times. Yeah. You know, and I'm no, just I... sitting there going, how much, yeah, how of much? this stuff yeah. am I going to put in there? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was also tough. Like the, the guys on the line were, were seasoned and, you know, I'd, I'd try to get that social aspect and they'd be like, I ain't here to make friends, buddy. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm here to work, and uh, it was it, it was rough for a while. So that was your first dose of what I would consider like a real kitchen situation, a kitchen crew. Most definitely, yeah, focus team. Yeah, everybody's there with um, kind of a shared vision. Yeah, right. 
probably you had a chef, I would think, that was leading the yeah. team who was actually like present and leading and engaged in the. Chef was in, uh, Chef Reb was in there uh, all the time. Yeah. You know, lunch and dinner. You know, I just weaseled in, you yeah. know, for dinner service, but he <laughs> was there nonstop. The, you know, I, I got to the point where it was like, I'm either going to do this or not do this. You know, I can easily go back to what the style I was cooking. Mm -hmm. um, but I also knew like the money was over here mm -hmm. with the jacket, you know? Yeah. Um, so I decided to just kind of go all in uh, and just become a better production person. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just learn, I'll watch, I'll learn to, produce what they're per putting out mm -hmm. and i did start like i went from hot app or cold apps to hot apps and then i went down to this station called veg veg was sandwiched in between uh grill and saute and mm -hmm. so you would finish every plate and you're kind of like the back expo chef was right in your face mm -hmm. and you were selling the food and nothing about it was technically hard. Like you were, you know, cooking here Covert and Vermonté. You were steaming spinach. You were dropping fries. You were braising endive and orange juice. And uh, nothing about it was technically hard. But the speed of getting this food out and the timing of it and then chef <laughs> being right in your face, mm -hmm. what, you know, made you nervous made anybody nobody wanted to work veg yeah. um and uh so i got down there and you know first shift i feel pretty confident and then i start losing it big time mm -hmm. start getting weeded um and chef's like stop 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 everything and i knew like the weight like dude now you're yeah. really screwing with service right and the expensive stuff um, and I was like, he's going to fire me. Yeah. You know, and he comes, comes around line. He's like, come here. <laughs> and, uh, he was like, what are you doing? He's like, you're better than this. You know, like nothing on this station is hard to cook. What's wrong. What's going on. And I was like, I'm just, I'm, I'm so weeded. I can't even see. <laughs> and he slammed his hand on my cutting board and he picked it up and he shoved it in, in my face and it had little bits of chives and, and just shit all over his hands. And he's like, that's what the inside of your brain looks like. He was like, clean this shit up, reset, mm -hmm. and get back to it. And, dude, I don't know what that one comment, mm -hmm. how it just altered everything. Yeah. Like, I got it. Yeah. That made it click for you. It That made production click mm -hmm. more yeah you know the next click was uh i got in trouble about putting up some shit i didn't taste mm -hmm. and then he came back again and <laughs> was like what are you doing here you know because if you're here just to cook there's the door yeah hit the bricks yeah and then he was like you know i was this lost like rudderless kid no direction cooking was only kind of the direction i had and he sat me down and he was like, look, dude, what we're doing here is like creating timeless experiences for people. And that was the second dose. Mm -hmm. That was the second thing that really shifted my perspective because it gave me 
purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was so much better than anything that I could have ever planned or come up with for myself. And it was like, oh, I'm here for other people. Right. You know? And that lit a fire under my ass. I mean, th- that was it. That's when I was all in. That's when I was like spending all my extra money on cookbooks. That's when I was really, you know, starting to learn these things that like, you know, cooking is the only thing that you can really do and stimulate someone's, all their senses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also something that like my interpretation of a flavor profile can transport someone all the way back in time to five year old to five years old with the first bite of like an oatmeal cookie. Like it's powerful stuff Uh and that's really when it was just like okay here's what i'm gonna do um you know and and became all in uh but i worked with fred for about five years for rue and then opened up good food catering and uh gave my shot at catering and spent a year there it was not what i signed up for it was a lot (laughs) what what was it about catering I mean, I, I feel like I kind of, I, I might have an idea, but, but I'd like to hear it from you. Like what? So I'm uh, sure opening the, the catering company was a learning curve and, and exciting to learn new stuff and put, put some, put your brain to practice on how to get something started. I mean, for me, like I was always, you know, I'm kind of a restless person. I like to be like, go, go, go all the time. Catering is uh, hurry up and wait. Yeah. And, but man, when you're about to hurry, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's a lot, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but when you wait, you are all the way down there, like yeah. trying to move. But I, I think it was like, I don't know, in a kitchen, even when you're cooking the same dish every night, um, it's always a little different. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit more water content in this. There's a little less water content in this. This is a little bit starchy, starchier than the guys we got in last week. So it's it's always kind of adaptive and changing. Catering's different. Mm-hmm. It's just like we are making millions of these things. Yeah. You know. Yep. For the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but we were also like so busy. I think we we projected to do like a million dollars in revenue and we did five you know so it was just like a juggernaut like we're straight out of the gate one year it was eight o'clock in the morning to 1 a.m at night Mm -hmm. six days a week for a full year yeah uh and my son was born during that time so that was a that was a rough one yeah plus i had you know a a vicious (laughs) drug and alcohol problem Uh you know so uh (laughs) you know that was a lot but you know, I, what, year, what year was this? This was uh, roughly <laughs> 2006, 2007. Okay. And then another buddy of mine called me up one day. He was like, hey, man, there's this, uh, there's this badass chef opening up a restaurant called Mercado. He's a really great guy. But I got to go to rehab. <laughs> and I don't want to leave him hanging. Would you <laughs> fill my spot? Uh, and that chef was Jacques Larson. Okay. And, uh, so, uh, went over there, spoke with Jacques, uh, to start out as like a prep cook, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always kind of the struggle of hospitality is that like you, you work your way up in one spot and then 
if you want to advance by going somewhere else, you yeah. kind of have to start over again with pay, experience, everything, yep. you know? So that's kind of where I started again with Jacques was at prep and then like made my way up to line, you know? So I went from classic French brasserie style where lots of ingredients, long, long cooking, lots of cream, lots of butter, handfuls of salt and everything mm -hmm. to what Jacques was doing was very, um, he didn't get a lot of credit for it, man. But like at that time, 2008, like I think he, we were getting everything from local farmers. Mm -hmm. Like he was sticking to the true Italian route, you know, mm -hmm. let's just get the best shit we can in here. And then like five ingredients. Mm -hmm. And there's something about cooking that way. That's, infinitely harder mm -hmm. because you had to perfect five ingredients yep. like you're totally naked mm. and i was fucking over salting everything <laughs> you know jacques was like you got to get rid of that french saltan dude right. like you just don't need it over here it's We're the lack of it's the lack of fat yeah there's not as much fat in that kind of cooking so you, you don't need to carry as much seasoning and you you're, you're, you you're working with you these other more. really robust flavors. Yeah. You know, there's like lots of garlic. There's yeah. lots of freshness. Yeah, there, I mean, that's herbs, the key. Like tons of like fresh, 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 you know? So yeah. uh, that was another learning curve, uh, but I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. You know, that was probably the most passionate I got about food mm -hmm. was kind of cooking that, that style. Kitchen. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the... Jacques separated like two years later uh, to open the Wild Olive Group, mm -hmm. and and I stepped in and took over as executive chef. And um, you know, it was I spent eight and a half years in that building, mm -hmm. and it was running like a top. Food cost was in line. Labor cost was in line. I think we had, I, I got this, uh, you know, extruder. I think we had food costs at like 22%. Yeah, that's you good. You know, we were making everything in-house except for tomatoes. And I got a, I got a story about Sam Marzano tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would, I would come in at like 10 o'clock in the morning and I would go up to the office and I would take a big pull off a bottle of Jameson mm -hmm. and I would do a big line of cocaine <laughs> and then I would go down and sit with the president of the company and the owner of the company and they would flip through the numbers and they would say everything looks great yeah keep doing what you're doing <laughs> and I was like perfect yeah <laughs> I couldn't see it happening you know mm -hmm. family started Everything in my life is on complete fire, uh -huh. except the job. Yeah. The numbers, the, the food was good. People at the place was busy, you know, and the uh, boss was happy with your performance and the customer was happy, Yeah, you know, and that was kind of the great justifier that this other very dark side of my life was starting to, to mm -hmm. surface in 2014. Like I, I would say, I, I, I would tell you a, not too long ago that like I left Mercado because I wanted to get out there and do my own thing but the the reason I left Mercado place was running like a top is because I just couldn't stay 
I couldn't mm-hmm. stay anywhere. Yeah. So I started hopping mm-hmm. around. Um, and I would also like to tell you that the, <laughs> that was consulting. Sometimes it was consulting <laughs> in my brain and sometimes it was not consulting with the, you know, the people that I was going in to run their spots. But uh, I left Mercado in 2014. Charleston was doing this fun thing at that time with, uh, you know, before that it was like your $40 plate fine dining spot or your $5 burger and a beer right. for the college kids. Mm-hmm. And you started seeing this middle tier chef driven price point was right that you could feed everybody and mm-hmm. everybody could come once a week and get this meal that had a lot of skill wrapped around it yep and they were fun and they were funky and you could tell that they bought like opened them up on a shoestring budget and they were unpretentious and line cooks could eat there yep you know and i wanted one of these spots so bad you know but didn't find it right away and started my consulting deal (laughs) you know yeah because lots of places were opening up and lots of people were trying to get to revenue and so I would just kind of hop in, give you three months, get mm-hmm. things in place, get you to revenue, find my replacement, and then I'd peace out. Labor. When I was working at Rudajon, we had people knocking on the back door of that place. Mm-hmm. Here's my resume. Yeah. Can I work here? Yeah. We had five, six people a week come in and sit down in the bar and fill out an application. You know, we had this stack in the office of applications and resumes that we had highlighted because they had a good work history Mm -hmm. they worked at places we respected the rest of them went into the garbage file it yeah um you know we're throwing away (laughs) resumes and applications you know when was the last time that happened um and then I would say right when I, uh, maybe around 2010, when I was a couple of years into Mercado then, like uh, I started hearing other chefs talking about, it's getting really hard mm-hmm. to find people. And we weren't experiencing it there. Uh, you know, our, our place, you know, paid really well for that time. And, uh, and Jacques had created this really good, like, culture within mm-hmm. the building he was probably the first guy that i ever worked for he's that, he's known for his company culture yeah i mean i, I mean he's kind of legendary for that he just you you felt like part of a family mm-hmm. with him um and even after i took over like that reverberated until the day i left like mm-hmm. most of my of the people that were on that line at the end when i left had been there for eight and a half years wow we were always looking for a Garmage guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, who's the new, who's the new cat? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, Garmo was super hard. It was uh, out in the dining room and Oof. extremely technical, but it was an AC and nobody wanted to fucking work out there. But, um, <laughs> we weren't experiencing it there, but I was hearing the murmurings about it. But once I left to go on my tour day mm. consultant, uh, <laughs> 2014 to 2018, I opened up eight spots. Wow. And I opened them up all understaffed. Mm-hmm. And that almost, that mixed with a horrible alcohol mm-hmm. and drug problem uh, was really the recipe for, you know, me just kind of crumbling. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it's crazy. Like looking back, like I put myself in that position. Right. You know, it's like, okay, what work scenario can I put myself in <laughs> yeah. where I'm required to work three months straight right. <laughs> and not deal with all these other life responsibilities that I have. Right. And that was doing that. Yep. You know, during that time, like I was making really good money doing the consultant thing, but uh, I could go a month or two without without a gig or whatever. a gig. Yeah. So uh, I started Airbnb in a room out of my house to like make ends meet. And all this will converge at one one point. But uh, I was doing a consultant gig for a restaurant downtown. I had a good friend, uh, Lance Curry, that I worked with at Mercado uh, for years and the obstinate daughter that I used to live with. And uh, I got a call from him one day that like his liver just stopped working, you know? And uh, before work, I'd go to MUSC and see him. After work, I'd go to MUSC and see him. And he was dying from alcoholism. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I didn't know how to handle it, you know? I mean, I asked him, I was like, what happened, you know? just start doing hard stuff, you know? And it was yeah. like, no, I just quit drinking beer. And I was right there. Uh -huh. You know, the, I don't know, man. I remember one time seeing this movie, Leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, if I ever drink like Nick Cage from Leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. It's a problem, and I'll go get help. And the second it happened, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. It's too late at that point. You know, so here I was, like, my best friend passing away, uh, not knowing how to cope with it other than kind of doing the same thing yeah, that was killing him. the same medicinal him. drinking and partying. Yeah. I mean... The hospitality industry definitely comes with a lifestyle, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, we've got something for everything, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, you, you get out, you're pumped full of adrenaline, you know. We got something for that. Mm -hmm. Having trouble socializing, we got something for that. Did you have a little too much to drink last night? We got something for that. You a little too jittery because you took it? We got something for that. Right. And we got something for everything. Mm-hmm. And, dude, everything that I did and took and, you know, it was – it's making me work better. Right. Um, so you think. Yeah. <laughs> Until, you know, it's sitting there in front of you so crystal clear and so honest and so truthful that you can't run from it. Yep. And, uh, unfortunately, it took the death of my best friend to get me to that spot. So I went into recovery – I went to prep in the morning for Jacques. Mm -hmm. I need something with the least yeah. amount of responsibility. Yeah. You know, and I have these other obligations that I need to fill in the evenings. Um, and what, did, what did the recovery road look like for you? Did you do like, were you doing like meetings and shit like that? Was that the approach that you went? Or were you just like a cold turkey guy? Like I fucking got this. Um, no, there was no cold turkey yeah. for me. I mean, I'd been trying the cold turkey for a decade. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the second my son was born, I was like, okay, it's time to, you know, slow down. Right. You know, so 2008, you know, yeah. or 2005. 2005, when my son was born, I was like, okay, it's time to turn into the Budweiser dad at the grill, uh -huh. you know, and play that role. And, uh, and I couldn't do it, uh -huh. you know? Um, and when you fail at something, you know, I don't want to show up for the people that I'm failing for. Uh -huh. So the guilt and the shame and the remorse, it packs on and it packs on heavy and it's a real good recipe to drink, and then you drink, and you end up doing wild, <laughs> crazy, bizarre stuff that lead to more guilt and more shame and more remorse. Yep. You know, and I'm the kind of guy that like if the if the power bill is $150 and I got 149, then there's no use anyhow. Right. Let's just go to the bar. <laughs> right. And then you blow $149 right. and then you wake up in the morning, you're really in a tough spot, right. but you have such a great reason <laughs> to do it again. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was stuck in, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but my consumption got so high, you know, I think with, I was always kind of a beer, you know, 10 beers, six or seven shots at the bar kind of guy. Mm -hmm. Um, until I didn't feel comfortable at the bar. Yeah. And then one day I drank, I realized I couldn't afford to drink at the bar. You know, that's yep. kind of weird when you're an executive chef. Right. Like how'd that happen? <laughs> um, but that's it, man. Yeah. Once I brought it home, yeah, it was over. Mm -hmm. um, you know, once I wasn't going out to drink just for that day. Right. You know, it, it wasn't it part of the culture anymore of like, you know, this is, this is my drinking after work. I'm with my guys. I'm having my, you know, my, it wasn't part of anything. Yeah. It's just, it you're was, just consumed by it. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it? What, where, where did the, the switch happen where you're like, all right, going into recovery? Like what was there? A, was there an instance, a thing? Is there one thing that did it? I mean, I got, I got sober June 11th, uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, which Congratulations, was, by the way. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting easier. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was, you know, that was four days after Lance passed away. Mm -hmm. um, and I had tried recovery two years prior. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know couldn't separate like no man they're gonna like ask me to go to church i know that that's right, what they're yeah. gonna do the god thing's gonna come into it yeah. and that's gonna turn me and off that's all i heard you know yeah, i yeah. sat in there i heard the g word and i was yeah. like that's it yeah i'm, I'm out, out. yeah gotta go <laughs> um yeah but that's also like when things shifted you know it was like it, it got so much worse two years after that and right. uh you know my thing was um lance passed away I was I called work. I was like, I need seven days. They were like, take it. Uh -huh. And I just went off the rails. Uh -huh. uh, I had like carte blanche, you know, it, there was definitely a lot of guilt and remorse around what had happened to Lance. But dude, like there was also this excitement of like, nobody can tell me 
not to do what I want to do right now, mm-hmm. which is really sick. Yeah. And so I just flew off the handle. June 11th, 2016, I woke up at 930 in the morning on my living room floor. And something told me, Ben, you need to get your kids. And I called up their moms and I was like, I need you to bring me the kids because I wouldn't drink around the kids. Uh I'd get loaded the night before. I'd pick them up. I'd go, Daddy doesn't feel good today. Let's watch movies. Uh Then the second day of visitation that I had, okay, I'm feeling better. Let's go outside and have some fun. But all I'm thinking about is dropping you off tomorrow Uh and getting back at it because I can't stand not being drunk. And I'd pat myself on the back as a good father because I didn't drink for two days. Right. You just don't know how sick you you get and like so protective over this booze you know so protective over the thing that's killing you yeah but something told me to get the kids i called the moms i was like i need you i need you to bring me the kids and they're like are you fucking crazy (laughs) like we know where you're at right now and i was just i begged i was like the wheels are about to fall off Mm -hmm. like i need you to bring me the kids and they brought me the kids and i detoxed for like three days Dad was sick. Like, they were used to it. Uh-huh. You know, and those little guys brought me water, made me peanut butter sandwiches, and took care of me through it. How old were they? My son was 11. Okay. And my daughter, Lulu, was probably about four or five. After I detoxed, there was a park right up the street. I took him up there and I was still so weak and you know I just sat there and watched him play and I was just like what are you doing yeah you know like dude you've got (laughs) for the first time in my life I could see what I had Mm -hmm. and that was it I was back in recovery the next day and uh the g word didn't sting anymore yeah yeah I mean a very integral part of my life. Um, yeah. You know, it's the only thing that I do more than anything today, even being a parent, even work, because without it, the kids are gone, the job's gone, the house is gone, everything's gone. Right. And I'm, just, I'm not willing to let that happen, you know? Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's not a story that is like, uncommon right i think so julie and i were doing um we recorded just kind of an updated podcast that we released today and we were looking back at a lot of the interviews that we've done with chefs and restaurateurs and people and trying to find the commonality right like what where are the what are what are the common threads amongst a lot of these conversations and and the one thing that really stuck out to me was self-care and mental health mm-hmm. right and sobriety which is becoming you know, I'm really stoked to say, like, it's becoming commonplace now. I think that, you know, you kind of come from the same time period that I came up. Yeah. Right? Like the old school kind of uh, mentality brigade where it's like 
fucking all or nothing and you're just fully committed, full throttle, whatever it takes to get it done. Make it happen. Yeah. And that, and that, and that <laughs> carries over to the partying too. And like, yeah. yeah, there were no rules, right? It didn't matter. I would do anything. It didn't matter what it was. <laughs> I, would, I didn't even know what shit was that people were like, you want this? I'm like, fuck yeah, I want that. Give it to me. Um, you don't even know what you're taking half the time. Yeah. But now talking to a lot of peers and other chefs and people like, seems like that mentality is starting to temper and that there's a conversation about it, you know, and I think it's becoming, it's not taboo to, to talk about it, right? It's not as shameful to talk about those experiences. And I'm thank you for sharing yours because that's real shit. Like that's really what's happening right behind the curtain in, in, in some of these places. So, um, do you have any advice for people or for yourself 10 years ago? Hmm. Like what would you, what, knowing what you know now, right? Being sober for how many years? Six, how many years? Six and a half years. Six and a half years. What, what advice would you give to yourself then like pre-breaking point? Is there anything? I mean, it probably wouldn't have mattered. You wouldn't have listened. Even if it was me telling myself that, yeah, I would have the same reaction as anyone else telling me, yeah. which is like, <laughs> yeah, go fuck yourself, dude. Yeah. I got this. Yeah. You know, that's the that's the horrible thing about addiction, denial, all of it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a problem until I'm aware that it's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's the only disease out there that's self-diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Nobody can fucking tell me that I'm an alcoholic except for me. Right. And there is a definite threshold of alcohol that I'm going to need before I can see it clearly myself. Right. That's the leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, you know, and from a guy that hates the G word, like, you know, God willing, you'll make it. Yeah. To the point that you see it for what it is. Mm hmm. You know, because a lot of people don't, I think as it, as it is industry related, you know, we, as an industry, like we've taken so much resources, time, money, energy, and the customer experience, and we've done a really poor job at taking care of ourselves. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, we're kind of in the environment of that right now uh -huh. and that's great because when shit gets really big uh -huh. and it becomes a massive problem you can't point fingers uh -huh. you can't run away from it anymore it's sitting there and it's right in front of you and it's crystal clear and that's how problems are solved right people yep. go oh shit yeah oh we gotta <laughs> fix is, it yeah. this is a huge problem yeah we gotta know? fix this um but that's what we are in this industry. We're problem solvers. Mm -hmm. So let's so let's change to the new G word, mm -hmm. right? Gig pro. Yeah. Problem solving. How did that come to be? Because I mean, that's that's the impetus of it, right? There was a problem that you kind of identified. I mean, the you know, like a, when we went from a, a point where. We're throwing applications in the trash. Mm -hmm. Everybody and their brother 
had read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, it verified what they were doing, or it lit a fire in their stomach that people are just flooding into this industry mm-hmm. to be a part of it. Right. It romanticized the whole deal, and uh, and we're throwing applications in the trash, and labor is good, and fucking, you know, the boom. Then fast forward to 2018, I'm paying $54 to post a job to Indeed. Mm -hmm. I'm getting 200 applicants. I don't have like an HR recruiter at that time. Mm -hmm. Doesn't exist. We didn't predict it yet, you know? Yeah. Um, And I'm setting up all these interviews. Two people show up. I hire the wrong guy. I know I'm hiring the wrong guy. Three weeks later, he gets his first paycheck, and I never see him again. Yeah. Or I realize, oh, this isn't a good fit. Right. Or I realize, shit, he hates it here. Mm-hmm. You know? And there just wasn't a way to get the two parties connected and together. And, you know, when I was at my last consulting gig, you know, a dishwasher didn't show up for a shift. So I looked at the line, guys. I was like, we need to find somebody or we're screwed. Mm-hmm. And we all whip out our phone. Yeah. You know, looking for that guy that's not available on Friday night. Yeah. Where is Jimmy? I got Jimmy. I got John. I got Ed. (laughs) So my phone goes off. You know, someone's booked your Airbnb. And I was like, I wish he had booked to wash these fucking dishes. (laughs) And then I was like, bing. Yeah. You know, uh, there's an idea. Like, why doesn't this exist? I can pull out my phone, get a stranger to pick me up, take me across the street. I'm running a business out of my house, at work, off of my phone, but I can't use this thing to, to fill a shift. Right. You know? Like, that's what I need to do. And then I started thinking, like, man, we've been in a decade-long labor shortage. You know, started in 2008. It's 2018. I'm paying for fucking resumes. That really pisses me off as a chef mm-hmm. working in high-end dining. Like, I had seen CIA. I had seen I worked for Sean. I had seen I'd worked for Lotta. Cook me a cup of rice, dude. Mm-hmm. You know? And the most effective way that I ever knew about recruiting or hiring was the stage. Mm-hmm. You know? Like... Great resume, great chat. I need you to come in on Friday night. I need you to work a couple hours. I need to see if you gel with the staff. If you slept with one of my line cooks' girlfriends two yeah. years ago, it's not going to work out. <laughs> right. You know, I can't figure that out from a job interview. <laughs> right. You know, can you get back there and, and hustle? And, and more importantly, like, what do you think? Uh-huh. How does it sit with you? Is this a place that you feel like you can make an investment in? Like for over a decade, we've just been desperate hiring. Right. You know, you got a pulse, you're hired. Mm -hmm. Hail Mary, hopefully it works out. Hopefully it'll stick around for six months if you're lucky. You know, so when I had that idea, I was like, okay, this is a great way to connect. You know, Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. What do I do with this? Yeah, you were a drunk chef yeah like what the fuck well i've been sober for about (laughs) 11 months now okay cool you turned the corner yeah so (laughs) about 11 months i i had i had been sober um and you know so i had this idea and i was like you know i went to some people that i respected in the industry and i was like hey am i nuts or would you use this you Mm -hmm. know um 
And they're like, Ben, you know what we got. We're using Craigslist, LinkedIn, ZipRecruiter. It's not doing anything. Like, I'd be willing to try anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay, how do I build this thing, (laughs) you know? Uh, I had to go to a lot of, like, you know, startup grinds, one million cups. And I kind of learned that from recovery. Like, if you don't know what to do, like, go out, find the community of people that are doing what you want and connect with them and ask for a ton of help. And that's kind of what I did, you know, in these startup communities. And they were like, you need to, I was like, I need to build a mobile app like Airbnb. And they're like, dude, that's going to cost you a shit ton of money and you ain't got no money. (laughs) Uh, So try a website. Um, And so, you know, I went to a dev shop. I got a dev shop to build out a website for $20,000. And it was crude and it was funky and... I was like, nobody's going to use this shit. (laughs) Yeah. But they did. Did they? Yeah. And so I launched with, uh, you know, Paul's Restaurant Group and two catering companies, Salt House and Duvall. They used it 36 times in November of 2019. Mm -hmm. And then in December, they used it 86 times. And then in January, I was like, it's going to be slow. They're yeah. giving us some feedback. We need to fix a couple of things. Let's relaunch this thing to everybody, you know, right before Valentine's Day 2020. And that's what we did. And it was just me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I couldn't onboard businesses fast enough. Yeah. We did three times as many gigs, you know, the last two weeks of February than we did the whole first month of launch. Yeah. And then the first week of March, it's just going crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, this is happening. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and then COVID hits, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, at that point, like I had, I was like, dude, this is a cool Charleston thing, man. Like, yeah. you know, I had no plans of going anywhere else or leaving. I'd met this developer, um, you know, engineer that was, coming on board you know dev shops are expensive i don't know what the hell they're giving me i'm a chef like yeah, yeah. it looks good but right. i don't know anything how about does it code. Work? Yeah. how does it they could sell me shit and i yeah. would have no idea right. you know looks so, good yeah so i was bringing on this engineer you know uh that that was willing to come on board as as, as an owner and uh i'm kind of watching what's happening during covid and it's like, holy shit, you know, 2.5 million people laid off. Well, we've been understaffed for a decade. Yeah. We're in trouble. Yep. Like, I don't know how many we're getting back, but you never get them all back. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a little later, it's like 1.25 came back. Shit. Mm-hmm. We're in trouble. They're going to need this everywhere. So while the world was asleep, we built out the mobile app. Gotcha. Um, we relaunched that a year later in November of 2020 in Charleston. It was a very slow start mm-hmm. in the beginning because we didn't know, know how to migrate all of our prior users over or communicate to that many people. It's a total shit show. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but then it happened. It started happening. It was kind of perfect timing. Like around March, we started opening them back up. Uh, we launched Charlotte, we launched Nashville, and now we're in 26 cities. It's insane. Yeah. You know, so we went from me and 
Just Me from 2019 until the beginning of 2020, there was two of us. <laughs> then in April, there was three, and now there's about 65. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's huge growth. Yeah. <clears throat> what would you say, so obviously, so I have some questions yes. about where your head's at with the app. Because I know it, it, it definitely solves one problem, right? One problem that it solves is the quick fix, need somebody to jump, jump in and, and fill a spot, 100%. But a question I have about it is, do you find, are there career, what, what do you call a user of GigPro? Like a, a pro? A pro. Yeah, the workers. Yep. So do you find <clears throat> career pros on your app that are just, I mean, they're mercenaries out there just looking for, looking for, you know, high paying gigs. Do you find pros that are looking for a permanent home? Is there, do you have any data on that? Do you have any idea of like how the pros are using? I mean, that's definitely what we're building towards. Um, you know, we, we looked at like, you know, okay, what, what's the first problem? Mm -hmm. You know, 1.25 million people are hauling ass, running as fast as they can away from this industry. Yeah. Not looking back with the possibility that the 1.25 that did come back, a third of them are looking to exit as well. Mm-hmm. So how do we stop that? Right. Number one, you know, if that many people don't return to an industry, like there's obviously a huge layer yeah. of distrust, mm -hmm. you know, Amazon acquired hundreds of thousands of people from our industry and all they had to do was pay them 17 bucks an hour mm -hmm. and give them benefits. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's a great cultural environment working in a fucking hot, sweaty warehouse mm -hmm. throwing packages around, but they didn't have to do much to do better. Right. You know, so if there's a layer of distrust like that, then how do we empower, you know, a workforce of people? We attract them back in on a non-committal basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think that the whole industry is bad. Yeah. I just think the majority of it is. Yeah. I think in 2010 to 2012, about 20% of the industry did that introspection mm -hmm. and said, it is getting super hard to find people. Mm -hmm. Why don't we concentrate on how we're doing things? How much are we paying? Are we providing sustainability? Mm -hmm. You know, what's our culture look like? I mean, the industry itself has always been set up to be temporary, mm -hmm. you know, but it's no longer a stepping stone. Right. Like it requires skill. Now the mm -hmm. majority of the industry requires skill and that's because the internet and food network, mm -hmm. you know, we used to have this smoke and mirror of like vinaigrette. Ooh, mm. that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, Fancy. Our customers <laughs> like, you're not fooling me with that one, motherfucker. That's yeah. oil and vinegar. <laughs> yeah, you know? I can shake this up in a glass bottle and Shazamo. So, <laughs> <I got> it. <laughs> you know, there was a time 
when we had that shroud, you know, and then the internet came out, Food mm -hmm. Network, and like all of a sudden you can get a wor world-class recipe from a world-class chef in seconds, and you go into the home cook's house now, and they got immersion blenders and sous vide, you know, mm -hmm. machines and, and all the stuff. <laughs> right, and all our the secret tools that we competition have. Competition is our consumer. Right. So we have to take it up a notch. Mm hmm and now we require skill. And, and when you require skill, the other thing that's required is career. Mm -hmm. Because someone that comes in and puts 10, I had to put 14 years into this industry and I was a badass mm -hmm. <laughs> on the line. Yeah. And the highest I ever made hourly was 12 bucks an hour. Yeah. And so anybody, once I went to management that came through my kitchen yeah. and asked for more, yeah. I was like, are you bananas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I perpetuated this thing yep. for a long time as well. Right. Um, dishwashers make this. Line cooks make this. Sous chefs make this. Chefs make, th make this. No more, no less. Mm -hmm. What do you mean you're leaving because you had a kid? Right. Because I need health insurance. Right. You know, and I think in 2010, 2012, you really started seeing the wages creep up. You started seeing things like healthcare. Uh, you started seeing things like PTO. You started seeing things like guaranteed time off. Uh -huh. You know, um, you started hearing about like, hey, you know, what does it look like? What's our culture look like? Like, are we cultivating these people? Uh huh. And 20% of the industry really started doing the right thing. But when you have 80% of the industry doing the same old thing, right? make it happen. We're going to grind you into dust mm -hmm. and then look for your replacement. You know, then the 20% suffer. Right. You know, our mission as a company is like, let's attract them back in on a noncommittal basis. Mm-hmm. Because even if they're pulling gigs here and there, they can use it for whatever they want. Right. You know, they can supplement their income. They can use it to gain experience. You know, it's not like I want to go, you know, be a career dishwasher somewhere. But I want to know what, you know, Ma Vandy at Maison's doing at Maison. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a pretty cool experience, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and they can use it to, I'm looking for a job. Yep. You know, and I want to try you before I buy you. Do you have any, do you have any, is there a way on your app for gigs to get recognized for being the 20 percenters, right? For being the good places that, that pros want to work at, right? Yeah. Like that offer, yeah, sure. They're going to, they're going to pay you whatever you're, your agreed rate is right for the gig. Um, but you know, this, this gig, right. This restaurant, um, you know, offers health insurance for its staff has, you know, tip the kitchen, something we do. Um, and you get kind of rated like they would on like an Uber app or something like that, where you can actually rate the experiences of the, um, the gigs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're we're building out like uh, business ratings, mm -hmm. um, which will track all that. I mean, right now it's like, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's the relationship, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, you can put anything you want in the job description, but I mean, 
that's kind of kind of like the job interview, mm-hmm. you know? It's yep. like at a job interview, two people are sitting across the table from each other. They both want something. I'm going to tell you anything you want to hear in this moment to get it. Mm-hmm. But you throw somebody in the service, mm-hmm. and what you get is transparency. Sure. These two <laughs> you can't, experiences. You can't fake that. Right. You know, there's no sure. way to do it. And that's like, you know, Right now, we're more understaffed than we've ever been. Uh-huh. We're busier than we've ever been. We're, we have no fast and effective way to recruit. We're, we're losing revenue because of it, because we're limiting our books. We're closing on Monday. We're closing on Sunday or Tuesday or whatever it is, uh-huh. you know, because we're trying to operate with a skeleton crew and not stretch them too thin or we're going to lose them. Uh-huh. Then we're really in a tight spot. So what do you do? Like... You know, with us, it's like you can you can get a talent pool, you know, that you can select from. So it's a it's an open marketplace. Mm-hmm. You post the job, they apply. You select who you want to come in, they confirm. You know, it's all business and pro making the decisions here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you get is someone to show up, why they show show up, because there's money attached mm-hmm. to it and, mm-hmm. and no commitment. And then once they're in the door, like, it's up to the business to sure. sell what you got. Sure. But I need a, I need a pipeline. I need a funnel to that. Because mm-hmm. everything, the thing that I'm using, and, you know, that same job post that was 54 bucks in 2018 is over $1,000 now. Mm-hmm. That's really expensive pieces of paper. Yeah. And there's no more stack of 200, it's 30. Right. And it's probably the same 30, mm-hmm. but it's the only option I got. Mm-hmm. You know, so none of that guarantees a job interview, none of it guarantees a hire, but you know, what didn't work before COVID's not gonna work now. Right. We gotta try something different, you know? And what we're really good at is like helping a business build out a pipeline of 20 or 30 people that have come through and that they've made connections and relationships with and they're vetted and they've been vetted by the market as well, you Mm -hmm. know, of their peers, like get those people through. Not all of them are going to be full-time material, but if they had a good experience, you can tap into them really quick, you know, to cover that. Oh shit moment. Mm -hmm. I just need a dishwasher for tonight. But that's what we need is, is like, I need people to connect with. Yeah. You know, what is the vetting process for a pro to, um, to be featured on the app? So uh, anyone can get on. Uh, we have layers. We've got, you know, they've got to upload a picture. They, we do ID verification to make sure, you know, they are who they say they are. Uh, they can write a little bio about themselves, why they're the right person for the job. Upload work history. It's kind of everything that would get a person through the door anyway. Right. Uh, and remember, we'll hire anybody with a pulse. Like, right. Yeah. You showed up, you're hired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then uh, we have background checks if, if it's something a business wants. And then uh, we have, we give the pro the option to, hey, if you want to get verified by our team, you know, to get a badge, you can book a meeting with us. We kind of go over best practices and find out like, you know, a little bit, of their background within hospitality. So, so you do like an interview process yeah. and, and that, that would be a badge. Yeah. And person. we don't, we don't make it mandatory because there's a lot of businesses out there right now that like, yeah, you just, need- I don't want someone with 
you know, experience. Yeah. I want to teach somebody that's green as shit. And yep. the only way that they know it is it's my way, is and, my way. And that's yep. it. So, um, you know, we have all these different layers. And then uh, once they do start working and completing gigs, we track performance and accountability. Mm-hmm. So something you'll never get from a job interview, something you'll never get from a resume. Yeah. Like, I can copy and paste anything. I can yeah. tell you whatever you want to hear. But, like, and so in the future, if I'm going to, you know, go to a data set of people that I want to recruit from and, and connect with and build a relationship with, I kind of want it from the people that are tracking good performance and accountability. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what's, so where, what's the trajectory for you guys? So what are you, what are you doing now? I mean, it's, it's working in Charleston. We use it. Yeah. Um, it's working a couple thousand yeah. times a week in yeah. Charleston. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, we're starting, uh, you know, next, next year we're going to launch another 25 markets. Um, we're Atlanta was our first big boy. Okay. Um, so, you know, next to hit is going to probably be Philly, Detroit, uh, Minneapolis, and then we're going out west. <laughs> oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, cool, man. Well, so what's what's going on with you? What's your role in all of this now? So you've you you you've you had the the light bulb moment moment. Yeah, it was a, it was a rough moment to get to. Yeah, right to find that light bulb, um, but you made it happen against yeah. some pretty fucked up odds. You know, getting getting it kicked off and then basically shut down um, by COVID and surviving all that, you know, getting through that um, to now it looks like um, it's growing pretty efficiently, like pretty quickly. Um, What's your role in all that? Hands off and let it grow. Let it, let it grow. (laughs) I mean, there's a, there's a team of people that are, you know, uh, highly, professional top i mean we got a a best in class like corporate executive team nice you know badasses that have scaled software companies uh so it's in their hands the actual function of the yeah the day the the day-to-day and then uh you know i i would say my, my big thing is that you know we're mission driven i mean we're 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 not trying to provide a service to the hospitality industry nor do we play ball anywhere outside of the hospitality industry. We could do this thing in, in, in healthcare. I mean, no one's been immune to this mass exodus. You know, right. we could do it in retail, warehousing, all that, but we choose not to. Like our number one place of passion is the hospitality industry. And then uh, the second thing is that, you know, there's doppelgangers out there that are doing what we do uh, and they're just – super unsustainable you know uh, our fees are 18 percent on top of the total gig that means every hundred dollars you spend uh, we tack on 18 bucks if you pay 20 bucks an hour the pro gets 20 bucks an hour we don't mm-hmm. shave anything off the top the other guys out there 35 to 45 percent mm-hmm. that's pretty steep that's you know where's that money going to get shaved off from it's going to get shaved off from the professional yeah which means you kind of always get subpar talent um and then they control the labor so guy came in guy was awesome guy was great i can't hire him because i gotta break a con contract so we're free to hire man Uh you 
we're more like tender than temp staffing, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so we're not trying to provide an unsustainable uh, service. We're trying to create like a, a true partnership and get people back to this industry. Um, and then in the long run, the long game, I think that it's just a smarter way to hire. Yeah. You know, yeah. why wouldn't yes. you want to bring someone in for the night yeah. and, and give them a test ride? And the same for the other, you know, I stuck around some pretty shitty jobs for way too long because right. it's like, you put your head down, you get to work, and I'll worry about it tomorrow, but when's the fucking good time to go out and yeah. find a job when you're working 50 hours a week wanting right. to completely kill yourself? Right, yeah. You know? Your day off, you're trying to rest. Like, you're yeah. trying to get your brain back yeah. together before you go back at it. But, you know. Or paying I, your rent or whatever. A lot of people see us, you know, in a bunch of different ways. Some people get it. Some people see it as a threat. Oh, everybody's just going to work temporary. And it's like, well... Even if they're working five to six gigs a month on, you know, a week on the app, at least it's in the industry. We didn't lose them to Amazon or construction or wherever the hell they went. Right. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, listen, um, time is up. We got to get rolling. But I want to circle back with you in a few months and um, we'll, we'll do a little follow up because I'm curious how the expansion is going to go as you're I know you're about to hit the road and try to try to plug some markets and make some connections and all that good stuff. Um, But um, thanks for sharing your story. Good job on the gig pro thing, man. Thanks for doing it. Cause it's, 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 it definitely makes a part of this easier. And I think it's going to take a while for, for restaurateurs and chefs and people to learn how to use it effectively. Right. Um, Or to get the most out of gig pro. Right. I mean, I think it's easy. It's the easy thing is to get somebody in your door to like, we're, you know, fill the dish pit one night, but I think really learning how to use it as a tool for hiring yeah. and retention is the thing that I think people need to wrap their heads around. Cause I think that was my, that was my kind of stigma it- with it at first. I was like, so is this, are you going to be actually pulling people out of my, my brigade to become mercenaries, right? Yeah. To become these like cooks for hire, <clears throat> which I think maybe some people do, right? They're trying to take advantage of a situation. Um, but I think if you shift your perspective a little bit and say, okay, how can I use this as a tool to retain and find the right people, um, at a fairly low cost, I mean, well, you said 18% isn't low cost, but how much time and energy are you spending on these other, you know, recruiters and, and sifting through resumes and stuff. So, um, so thanks for doing it, man. Good job. And, uh, I hope the best for you and all this stuff and i look forward to circling back with you yeah we'll see what happens (laughs) thanks man i appreciate your time yeah man thank you